for the Pacifica Radio Network and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. Well over half of the, or half of the clergy in the United Church of Canada have a panentheistic understanding of God. And I really, you know, I really don't care what the definition of panentheistic God is, except insofar as where does that leave me in terms of the doctrinal statements that the United Church is now trying to drill into us? So a panentheistic understanding is usually an understanding of God that pervades the universe, that is beyond the universe, that can interpenetrate the universe, may or may not have a supernatural interventionist element, um, but it's, you know, it's not anything that someone who is uh, not done significant reading on it would really understand as what we think God is uh, in the general public. So you have a majority of clergy who understand God in a panentheistic way. And that, for me, um, I have a hard time legitimizing the na- those kinds of names um, if we aren't also going to legitimize names like atheist when it comes to an understanding of God. Because a theistic, under- theistic God is a God with being, with character, with att- attributes, with which we can interrelate uh, generally. It's generally accepted that that's what it is. I don't think we can really do that with a panentheistic God. And I don't think we do that with an atheistic God. Like, if we have complex understandings of what God is, but we continue to use the word God to describe them, then it doesn't matter how intricate or how evolved or how um, broad-minded those understandings of God are. If somebody thinks when I'm using that word that I mean God in heaven or God who's going to answer my prayers or God who's going to, you know, provide me the right opportunities for my life when those opportunities are needed, um, I'm not getting across to people. So it doesn't matter whether I'm an atheist or a panentheist. My point is, using that language is exclusive. And I just don't want to use the language. The work that West Hill does could have been done by a theist or a panentheist who said, hey, wait a minute, there's this entire sector and a growing sector in our population whose spiritual needs, whose desires to be in community, to engage on the important issues of life. That whole sector is being ignored. And I have the capacity to welcome them into my space. I welcome back Greta Vosper. She is the atheist minister from Canada. Her denomination has reviewed her fitness for ministry and found her unsuitable. Why? We'll talk about that, and you can decide. Full disclosure, I too am an atheist minister. Greta is the author of With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than What We Believe. She's pastor of West Hills United Church in Toronto, Ontario, at least for now. She talks with me today about her community and what's at stake for communities of conscience who no longer need the God talk. Welcome back, Greta, to Progressive Spirit. Wonderful to be back, John. Good to have you back. Uh, so the last time we talked, uh, you were getting ready to have all of your, I don't know, trial or whatever it was, and that's kind of been done. And uh, the, as I recall now, the board or the the denomination has said that you were unsuitable. But I don't know what's happened since then. What what, what is uh, what's going on? What's your status with the United Church of Canada? 
Well, it was the very end of June in 2016 that I met with the Ministry Personnel Review Committee, and they interviewed me, and their finding of my being unsuitable was shared uh, publicly at the beginning of September. Um, after that, the conference sub-executive had to take that finding and determine what to do with it. So they have asked the highest uh, level of the church, the general council, to have the judicial committee hold a formal hearing to place my name on the discontinued service list. That process is very likely not going to happen for uh, perhaps a year, maybe um, November is uh, when we're asking for it. They couldn't, the conference couldn't be prepared to respond to that until September. And I'm uh, out of the country doing some international travel through the month of October. So we're hoping that November may be the time that we start that conversation. So November next year. Yeah, so, November next year. So in the meantime, yep. you're, you're okay. You're, you're, you're still doing your thing with your congregation at West Hill. Well, it's interesting. I am doing my thing with my congregation at West Hill, but I am unsuitable to like, I'm not suitable to do it according to the United Church. So, you know, if I had a dentist who was found to be unsuitable, I really wouldn't want to sit in his chair. (laughs) But somehow the United Church has determined that despite my being unsuitable, I'm able to serve for at least another year um, until we work this thing out. Okay, and then uh, when the year comes up and you go, or do you get a chance to uh, make your case, or are they just going to sit in the dark room there and smoke cigars and decide on you? No, it's a very um, sort of court-like experience um, to reflect what would happen in a civil court in such a situation. So we are able to present our arguments. The conference will present its arguments. And the Judicial Committee will have to uh, take all of that and come up with a decision. Um, the, the challenge, though, is that I am unsuitable. And that's a decision that was made by a completely different organization, like a completely different part of the organization. And I don't believe that the Judicial Committee gets to review that finding. Um, so the real it's really what do you do with a minister who is deemed unsuitable for theological reasons and they will never have dealt with that question before and so they will have to determine how to deal with that hmm. well a lot of complex process but in the meantime you are still in your unsuitable way <laughs> working with mm-hmm. west hill and how are how are your folks at the congregation uh doing uh they're doing very well um this has focused us heavily on issues that we don't normally discuss. Uh, So the congregation has been dealing with the structure of the church, engaging it in ways that uh, it hadn't done before. It has been reaching out to others across the country, uh, and they have been engaging with us. We've been talking about theology way more than we ever normally do. So the struggle is to, on Sundays when we come together, the struggle is to be about the things that we're about, and that is trying to find ways to live in right relationship that are stronger, have more integrity, whether we're talking about uh, our relationships with ourselves, with others, uh, with the planet, uh, with future generations. That's the work that we're about. And and this uh, litigious process and disciplinary process has got in the way of that. But my challenge is to call us back to that each Sunday. So it has been pretty stressful for you uh, and your congregation. Absolutely. Uh, Unquestionably so. Uh, We have been um, trying to engage the 
structure. The congregation has been trying to engage the structure throughout uh, this past um, year and a half, uh, longer than that, have sought ways to have conversations with our presbytery, with our conference, uh, have sent letters to the national body. Um, most of that we've had no response from. We have had one visit with four members of the congregational health team of our presbytery. But one of the interesting things that happened with that, it was an extremely good meeting. People in the congregation spoke from the depths of their hearts about how they feel about the work that they do, how important it is, the imposition of this process on that work and the challenges that that has created. I spoke to how my defining myself as an atheist has allowed the church, the wider church, to compromise the ministry of uh, West Hill United Church and how painful that has been. Um, but when they actually reported to the presbytery about the visits that they had done with congregations, not only did they not mention West Hill and did not mention that conversation and how important it was, they didn't even note in their minutes that they had had a conversation with us. So that's just the kind of underscoring the, the sort of absence that West Hill has had in this process and their and their the attempts that have been made to just ignore them and ignore what it is that that they're doing and want to continue to do and why they believe it's so important that they could continue to do that in the United Church of Canada. Let's talk about all of this theist thing, <laughs> atheist and mm -hmm. post-theist. I'm actually, uh, I've been emboldened by you. I, I now uh, uh, say, call myself a Christian atheist just because it's so marvelously jarring. Uh, and uh, the, <laughs> you know, the idea, yeah, it, the whole thing is, is, is a human product. Of course it is. And this is really not anything, as if we've talked about this before, that hasn't really been talked about in higher levels of theological education. I think that the challenges that have come to us from theological education in the liberal tradition are that we have been given the tools of critical inquiry, and we have been invited to apply those tools to the stuff of our, of our uh, work, and that is the Bible, that is the, the vast uh, quantity of theological reflection that has gone before, um, and and the stuff of uh, church leadership and and being integrity, having integrity in the pulpit. And so we can and have evolved uh, very intricate uh, descriptions of what we mean when we're talking about God or what, how we seek to approach the Bible. And, and we have mostly used those to explain and excuse uh, the ways that we use language in the context of our community's faith. And I think that um, perhaps one of the most embraced things of God in the United Church of Canada, certainly as was identified by a, a survey that I have a lot of problems with, but still it um, identified that about uh, well over half of the, or half of the clergy in the United Church of Canada have a panentheistic understanding of God. And I really, you know, I really don't care what the definition of panentheistic God is, except insofar as where does that leave me in terms of the doctrinal statements that the United Church is now trying to drill into us? So a panentheistic understanding is usually an understanding of God that pervades the universe, that is beyond the universe, that can interpenetrate the universe, 
may or may not have a supernatural interventionist element, um, but it's, you know, it's not anything that someone who is uh, not done significant reading on it would really understand as what we think God is uh, in the general public. So you have a majority of clergy who understand God in a panentheistic way. And that, for me, um, I have a hard time legitimizing the na- those kinds of names um, if we aren't also going to legitimize names like atheist when it comes to an understanding of God. Because a theistic, under- theistic God is a God with being, with character, with att- attributes, with which we can interrelate uh, generally. It's generally accepted that that's what it is. I don't think we can really do that with a panentheistic God. And I don't think we do that with an atheistic God. Like if we have complex understandings of what God is, but we continue to use the word God to describe them, then it doesn't matter how intricate or how evolved or how um, broad-minded those understandings of God are. If somebody thinks when I'm using that word that I mean God in heaven or God who's going to answer my prayers or God who's going to, you know, provide me the right opportunities for my life when those opportunities are needed, um, I'm not getting across to people. So it doesn't matter whether I'm an atheist or a panentheist. My point is using that language is exclusive. And I just don't want to use the language. So the work that West Hill does could have been done by a theist or a panentheist who said, hey, wait a minute, there's this entire sector and a growing sector in our population whose spiritual needs, whose desires to be in community, to engage on the important issues of life, that whole sector is being ignored. And I have the capacity to welcome them into my space if I just can find a way to make it more inclusive. Absolutely. And you've been very clear all along uh, about uh, how you want to use language that does make sense. I mean, we I grew up in the seminary, too, in which I, I don't know if my colleagues would agree with me. They probably wouldn't. But if, I think it's called it's doublespeak. Uh, we say one thing and and covers it covers everything. So we say, oh, yeah, believe in God. Well, what do you actually mean? Uh, and we aren't clear about it, uh, but we let it be because it's being unclear uh, that actually is the thing that uh, uh, kind of keeps the whole system going <laughs> in many respects. Um, and, and the fact of clarity is, is really the what the challenges that you're putting to uh, the church. And I don't think they like it. Well, I think that it tends the, there is a possibility that can uh, it can undermine the entire Christian endeavor. And Marcus right. Borg spoke very directly to that, that if we don't have an exclusive language, then how can we identify the group? And if you don't have a clearly identified group, then it can disappear into the culture. I totally get that. I, I really do. And, and I, you know, I may be doing exactly what Marcus said was going to destroy the church, the erasure of exclusive Christian language. But Marcus's reasons for maintaining that language are not good enough when people are struggling outside of community and are looking for communities to be part of. And those reasons were particularly identifying the group, but also because it was nostalgic. It makes us feel connected with what has gone before. 
If you're just joining us, this is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck, and I'm speaking with Greta Vosper, the minister who's challenging the church to be more inclusive and relevant. When we come back, let's talk about your community, West Hill United Church in Toronto. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm speaking with Greta Vosper, author of With or Without God, Why the Way We Live is More Important Than What We Believe. Well, a lot has been made of you and the word atheist. Let's talk about your community. Uh, Who are the people who attend West Hill United Church and, and what do you do there? Thank you, John, for that opportunity, because this is really a story about a congregation that has courageously uh, moved into a place beyond the language that defined it for. Mm-hmm. And they have done so uh, in order to remove barriers. Uh, and there are people in that community who are believers and there are people who are not believers. But in the conversation about who we wanted to be as a community, what came to the fore was those values that we wanted to engage in. And it was it's kind of like Sam Harris in, in his book, The End of Faith, he does this thought experiment where we wake up one morning and and we don't remember anything. We don't remember language. We don't remember what foods we can eat. We don't remember anything at all. And he says, you know, at what point do we have to remember uh, the story of the virgin birth, right? Like that would be way down the list. And so that's kind of what happened at West Hill. We decided what are the things that if we were starting this all over again, are the most important things to take forward. And they pulled out of their tradition the elements of the story that had most meaning and purpose to them. And those were the elements about love, the struggle toward living with compassion um, and all the contextual challenges that, that that places upon us, the 
So working toward justice, throwing ourselves against those impenetrable walls again and again in efforts to allow rights to be um, offered to people who have been denied them before. Voices can be raised for those who have been silenced or who believe that they're, they're not worthy of being heard. Those kinds of pieces that come to us, and many will say that they come out of the gospel tradition. Some will say they come out of the ancient Hebraic tradition. Some will recognize that they come from a number of religious traditions, and many will say those are humanistic values. So that's what we that's what we uplift there. And what you see when you come to West Hill is really, you know, you see a traditional church, like half the church is pews and half the church is chairs, and um, you do this stand up and sing hymns, and um, all all of the words of which are focused on values and don't include exclusive terms about uh, deities or privilege a particular person as the most representative of love that ever was. Um, readings are the same readings. Anything that is worthy of being brought into the space is read as a reading. So that doesn't focus us exclusively on biblical readings. We read them very rarely, actually. Um, you, you see, we have um, secular music that is brought in and shared with a choir, sometimes with a soloist. Uh, we have a lot of music that has been written specifically for our congregation by my husband, Scott Kearns, who is a, an extremely gifted uh, musician and composer. And um, it lasts, the service lasts about an hour and a half, and then we have a, a, a fellowship time after it. Uh, the first Sunday of every month, we have a potluck meal. So it's, a, it's like any other church. We had a bazaar a couple of weeks ago to raise money, a Christmas bazaar, and you know, it looks, smells, feels, and wags its tail like a church. We just don't have language as an exclusive thing. And what I think that that has, has done uh, in terms of creating an extraordinary community is that West Hill spends an hour and a half each week talking about what is important, how we want to live, how we've failed that, how our lives are, you know, subject and vulnerable to all the vagaries of life and we share them with each other as they as they hit us and we are able then to step into every moment with a wide heart um, prepared to do what needs to be done uh, that comes before us as a challenge prepared to respond to the community beyond us prepared to take action on a on a national scale in, in terms of some of the challenges that, you know, the, that our values place before us, the approval of the Kinder Morgan pipeline um, has completely winded a lot of us. So we're talking about ways to do that, that our pension board refused for the third time in 10 years to divest of gold core stocks, um, which is another issue that I'm raising with my board. Like, we know what's right, and we know what's wrong, and we know what we're going to deal with. We aren't fooling ourselves by just putting everything in biblical terms and using a language that isn't relevant to what's going on outside our door. Whatever we are talking about in that church is exactly what's relevant outside the door as well, and vice versa. So we are deeply embedded in what's going on in our community and in the lives of the people that we serve. And, and it gives us a, a lightness on our feet when it comes to discern, discerning what it is we have to do. I'm speaking with Greta Vosper, uh, 
United Church of Canada minister uh, from Toronto, uh, pastors a congregation called West Hill United Church, uh, went through a lot about uh, the, over the word uh atheist and moving beyond, well, I don't know what we might call it, post-Christian, post-theistic, but it isn't just about theism, it's the whole package, really, uh, of all of the beliefs, and taking what uh, what I'm hearing you say is that here is a congregation who's wrestled with the tradition, has found in it what uh, what they wish to continue, which is continues to be life-giving, and the rest, well, you just leave it there. And, uh, and this is what many people are doing automatically, whether they're in a community or not. Uh, so you're being uh, quite open about it. Uh, and you also you talk about uh, some post-theistic uh, uh, resources that you're working on. Yes, I've been working on them for a couple of years. The review has deeply um, carved into that, I'm afraid, so that they're not as complete as I would like. But each week when I'm preparing for the Sunday service, I read the lectionary passages from the year to come. So I've just started reading the passages for year B. Um, and I uh, read all of the lectionary passages. I identify a theme in them. Sometimes if they're uh, poetic passages, Psalms or, or something that has a poetic value, I'll rewrite that uh, in, ter- in a contemporary way, pulling out the values that I identify with it. Uh, within it and then make them accessible. And I, once I've pulled a theme out, I go looking for other elements that can be used in our service. So I look for other readings, for quotes, for videos, for whatever might be able to be used. Um, I often write a new set of words to a traditional piece of music. And, um, and those, the idea is that for clergy who find themselves still compelled to use the lectionary by their congregations or or their desire to be doing the same thing as other clergy in their community are doing, um, these provide them just with some ways to pick up a theme out of that without spending your entire 25 minutes deconstructing the scriptural passage for its political and socioeconomic context in which it was written and things like that. So that instead of talking about that stuff, you talk about that stuff in a, in a, in a study before the service or on a Wednesday night or something. But in the service, talk about how to edify your people, how to, how to challenge them to address issues that are happening in their contemporary world, um, using a theme that's come out of there, but that isn't illuminated particularly by whatever the context out of which that scripture passage came might have been. And you uh, and you, you and your congregation have done this over quite a quite a time. I mean, it's been quite an evolution uh, for you personally and with the congregation. And uh, in, in what level has the congregation participated with you in in recreating uh, what your service and what your community is? Uh, they've been very involved in it uh, over the years. We've been doing this now for about sixteen years. Started the work of. Uh, coping with my deconstruction of God mm-hmm. um, back in 2001. And the community has wrestled first with identifying what its values were and stating those. And they've redone that every five years since then. Um, and then when questions about the things that were happening in the service were brought to the elements committee, which is the committee who cares for what goes on during those services, Um, that committee would deal with them. So questions around uh, particular pieces of the liturgy, the responses in the 
prayer time, which we now have called the sharing time, but they rewrote, they wrote new responses for those. So it's, it felt the same. It was important for us to make it feel the same. We didn't want it to be suddenly, you know, a completely different liturgy. And I think that's one of the reasons why we were able to move as far as we did, as quickly as we did, because for people for whom being in church uh, and experiencing what it felt like were important, things felt the same for a very, very long time. But for people for whom the words were a block, those words disappeared. So we were pleasing two groups of people. And so we lost the responses to the prayers. We, we removed many, many of the, of the hymns. And that was sort of an ongoing process for a while. And, and eventually, I think the hymns that we had introduced and changed have been pretty consistent since about 2007, 2008. We haven't sung anything that really has any uh, reference to a theistic God or intervention or uh, some of the ideas that were prevalent in, in much of our hymnody. So that's been gone for a long time. Um, and our music people, that's my husband and the choral director, have done a lot of work in that area. And of course, I've been writing things for that as well. Um, the changing of the the community prayer time to community sharing time that took place in that committee, the decision to remove the Lord's Prayer took place over a number of months. Um, and was a very challenging decision for the congregation. But it had been parents in the church school who in 2004 challenged us to remove the Lord's Prayer from the children's time in the service because they said that it didn't reflect their understanding of God and they didn't want that to be the only understanding of God that their children were exposed to. And they didn't want that the only understanding of prayer that their children were exposed to. So that's when we wrote what we now call the words of commitment, which are said every week. Um, and we just we moved the Lord's Prayer at that time, but we did subsequently remove it from the service altogether. So it's very much been a community uh, decision. We didn't we didn't proactively change things. We changed them in response to um, expressed need within the community. Yeah. Um, and we've and we've held back on some. Like at one point, there was a desire to remove the cross at the front of the church in order to put in a projection system and. Things were already um, nerve-wracking enough at that point in time that I said that wasn't going to happen on my watch. Uh, so it remains there, but it's pretty much covered up with a bunch of multicolored streamers that we have at the front of the church, which are there to tell members of the LGBTQ community that they're welcome. And, and much of the imagery at West Hill uh, provides for that welcome and for the welcome and integrity in the dealing with um, indigenous persons. You know, I had a friend of mine who, uh, uh, for fun, I think somebody else called her this, a minister, uh, a strategic theist. And, and you mentioned <laughs> LGBT because so many people who would she would minister to needed to be told that God loves them. And so she's a, she, for herself, she's, okay, I'm not really a, a, a theist, but I'm a strategic one. And in some respects, I, I, you're somewhat like that too. Although you would be very I, clear about language, I know. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I have some problems with that thought because I think that it's pretty powerful, if not as powerful, for a community to look at an individual who has been racked with self-doubt and um, has done some bad stuff 
that they can't forgive themselves for. And when that community looks at that individual and said, we love, says, we love you, I love you, um, we can get through this together. I think that that's just as powerful as telling someone that God loves them. Without needing the middleman. Yeah. Without needing that theistic piece mm-hmm. to be added to it. Um, I don't. I don't challenge people's theistic beliefs. I mean, if people believe in God, that's absolutely fine. And and people often hear what I'm saying as, you know, they hear me talking about God all the time. Um, I have no interest in tearing someone's beliefs out of their heart, right? right. I, I really want to stimulate whatever their beliefs are uh, in order to allow them to live um, well with themselves, with one another, and with the world. And if that means me supporting their beliefs, um, I'm willing to do that. If they're going to use their beliefs to deny people rights, to do nothing but judge, and to um, protect a particular group of people at the cost of what others might enjoy, then I'm going to get in your way. Right? And that's the, I, like, and that's I don't the real think issue. should be used that way. Yeah, and that's the real issue that, uh, that we're facing um, in, in our denominations, is those who want to circle these wagons and keep, uh, and keep this... Uh, conversation out and keep the the people out who who want this congregation our conversation and who are initiating it i want to ask you are you alone there in the united church of canada in 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 this this, is there anybody that's kind of with you yes there there are people who are who are with us um there's a congregation in edmonton southminster steinhauer united church which has been incredibly vocal and supportive of the work that we've done there's a congregation in Regina in Saskatchewan and a presbytery there that created a proposal which went to the general council executive through the conference and the conference supported it to the general council executive asking them to uh, place a moratorium on this process until we could have a wider conversation across the church and questioned the general secretary's authority in creating the ruling that allowed this review to take place. Um, we have, there was a group of clergy in the Maritimes, I think there were 27 of them who signed a letter asking for pretty much the same thing that went to the general council executive. The general council executive has adamantly refused to uh, delay the process, although it is another year before it's going to happen, but to p- put a moratorium on. And when that proposal failed a few weeks ago at the general council executive meeting, another proposal was placed asking to call for a conversation at our next general council meeting in 2018, and that was denied. So we're very concerned about some of the things that are happening because the denomination seems to want to have a conversation. Uh, 43% of the commissioners at our general council said, we want to have a conversation about the questions of ordination, and that was denied. And that request has come back uh, to the general council executive, again been denied, Uh, The general council executive has said over and over that they do not want this conversation, that they do not believe that this conversation is important at this time. But recently, um, there was an article in the newspaper a couple of days ago saying that Nora Sanders, who is the administrative uh, head executive of the United Church of Canada, and her similar counterparts in the United Reformed Church in the UK, the Uniting Church in Australia, and the United Church of Christ in the U.S., had a conversation about how those four united uh, denominations may, you know, have common conversation toward uh, a positive future with one another. And a significant part of that conversation was about this um, atheist minister and the process that's going on about that. And at 
just a few days um, before that, or there, I was doing a talk-in show on Canada's national broadcaster, and two United Church ministers phoned in, one who clearly was still caught in a stereotypical understanding of atheists, and another who understood exactly what we're doing and expressed his support of it, his lament that the United Church has begun this process, which he believes is unfair and unhelpful. And when asked whether or not um, he felt that he was at risk of review uh, by the host of that program, he said, that's why I don't sign any documents and why I don't publicly support Greta. So my question to the leaders of those four um, denominations would be, do you too want to create a culture of fear in your denomination by imposing this kind of a process on clergy who have merely stepped a quarter of an inch ahead of where their theological education took them and take congregations who have used the resources that you've created for study groups and the books that are written by very publicly accepted um, theologians to take them to the edge of the language that we have used. And do you really want, when those people take that one quarter inch step further, do you really want to push them out the door and slam it behind them? Because I think that's, that's what we're doing here. And I think that that is, I'm happy. If that happens, I'll be happy. I have, there is a huge community out there that needs to be served. And I know a lot of people who will want to come together to do that work. But it will grieve me greatly that my denomination has has had the lack of foresight, the has had, you know, the audacity to say, yes, 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 we'll teach you this, but don't apply it. And certainly don't think beyond it and believe that you could still be welcome here. And I think that it will be said to clergy and to lay people across the denomination. I had uh, one of your colleagues who was on my uh, show previously, David Gulston, who said, yeah, I mean, if the best thing the church could do is just not send people to seminary anymore. You know, just Yeah, uh, exactly. So, I very much appreciated what David said on the show with you. Yeah, just send them to Bible school or something. We're going to take a break and return with Greta Vosper with some insight about what is really going on in the United Church of Canada. This is Progressive Spirit.
This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Sheck. Greta Vosper is a minister in the United Church of Canada. She was declared unsuitable for ministry, although she is still ministering in her community, West Hill United Church in Toronto, at least for a little while. There's a bigger issue at work. What's really going on with the United Church? Back in 2009, I did I tell you this? I went to the National Church to talk to a couple of staff people about protecting clergy who wanted to come out as not believing in a theistic God? Mm-hmm. No. I well, I did that in 2009 because I was getting emails from people. I got an email from someone who said, I'm going to come out as not believing in God on Palm Sunday. And I thought, oh, my God, like you're going to sacrifice yourself. You're going to get yourself killed or something. Right. So so I went to the National Church to meet with people to say, OK, what can we do now that my book is out there and people have read it and. You know, they're saying, I want to be honest like that, too. What can we do to support clergy who want to bring their congregations up to speed with what they themselves were taught in seminary and with contemporary critical scholarship? And I met with two leaders, two senior staffers. And at one point in the conversation, one of them said to me, Greta, we don't really know the United Church wants to go in a progressive direction. And I was like... Like that didn't even add up to me because the United Church has only ever been progressive, right? So I'm sort of looking at him going, hmm? And he goes, well, you don't want a lily white pew, do you? And I said, I don't know what you mean by that. And he said, well, if we want to attract the immigrant population, we're going to have to have a more conservative theology. Now that is so bad on so many different levels. And I didn't really know how to respond to him. So I said, well, the people who are not lily white in my pews are people who have been rejected by their communities of origin, or who have been attracted by the values that the United Church espouses, right? Anyway, at Presbytery a few weeks ago, I listened to the names of the people who are going to be admitted to the United Church. And it's a list of about 45 names. Most of them, the person reading them can't pronounce because they're Asian or, you know, some other language that she doesn't pronounce. But most of the churches that they're coming in from, many of them, and I would say the majority, were evangelical, fundamentalist, Pentecostal denominations, and they're mostly um, non-white people. So what has happened since 2009? And, and I didn't clue in for a couple of years because I didn't, hadn't read Reginald Bibby's work. He's a sociologist here in Canada that looks at a lot at religion. And he determined that um, Canada was going to, the congregations that were going to grow in Canada were the ones who reflected the immigration uh, population, which is how they have always grown. So we're not getting a lot of white European Protestants now. We're getting evangelicals from Asia and Africa. We're getting Roman Catholics from Latin America. And we're getting Muslims, right? So In 2009, I think that these people were already working with this trend analysis. They knew they weren't going to be able to attract the Muslims or the Catholics, so they decided they were going to attract the evangelicals. So we have had, and and that was the same time as they spearheaded this intercultural church model. So we have welcomed into the United Church lots of people from these other denominations and from other areas in the world. No problem. I have no problem with that. Accepting that. In the interview materials that are used to prepare people who are giving the interview, theological differences is identified as a cultural sensitivity zone. 
So you're not allowed to ask questions about theological differences, right? Hmm. Because they're cultural differences. So the people that we have brought into the church, we have welcomed um, without testing to see if their theology is at all consistent with the United Church theology taught in United Church theological colleges, and it is not. And so I started looking at this and realized that that's why we have, and, and the person who voted for my review or who made the motion for my review is, is a evangelical conservative who has come into the United Church from a, a denomination in Uganda or Nigeria, I can't remember which one. Um, so he's got like his, his and my theology would be like completely night and day. But he wasn't asked any questions about theology. So the United Church has done this. And, I, and then I went back and realized in 1988, when we decided to, to ordain the LGBTQ uh, community to allow them access to leadership, we didn't test them for theology either. So we had coming in and we open, had open arms. We welcomed people from a variety of different denominations, but we never checked to see if their theologies were consistent with the United Church theology. So since 1988, we have been moving in a much more conservative direction simply by our admissions process. And we've been admitting as many people as we've been ordaining. So we now have just a very different theological makeup in our uh, ordained leadership than we have ever had before. And which is fine if it goes all directions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But now, but the thing is, the liberal language, you know, with its, you know, intricate and highly evolved metaphorical definitions, that language is still owned by the conservatives. Right. So, you know, if you say, I believe in Father, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and my understanding is, you know, this, which takes me three paragraphs to explain to you, that doesn't matter because you can be held account to a literal belief in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I stood up at Presbytery and I just pointed that out and I said, you know, and I think that we have created, we've, we've, we've um, compromised the integrity of United Church theology. And I know... I walked out of the room and everybody's going, I thought she was just an atheist, but she's a racist too. <laughs> so, you know, which they could say if they wanted, but, um, but I just, I just think that we did that. And, and, you know, I'm all for cultural sensitivity and, and particularly training people to interview with it, but don't tell them they can't ask theological questions. Yeah. Know? That's just smacks of hypocrisy to worry about theology for you. And then not for, uh, those who yeah. are obviously not even connected with the tradition of the theology. Yeah, and have not even been trained within the tradition, right? Yeah. But it's all this, like, I don't know. It's like this, you know, it's apple pie and, you know, mom and apple pie. You don't, uh, you don't, you don't stand up and say anything about that, Greta. You look like an idiot, right? But No, I'm glad you did. There's not a lot of, yeah. And, yeah. There's, I, and I don't know what the fallout of that will be, but, but I, I really think, like, there were a number of people that went, oh, yeah. Like, they... They totally knew what I was talking about. I mean, we, we brought in a whole congregation, a Tamil congregation, did not check the theology of the congregation, went through a year of oversight challenges, finally decided that we couldn't admit the guy because he was doing he was preaching against same-sex marriage and hellfire and brimstone that was going to happen to gays and lesbians. They're going to be, you know, had deserved to be lynched. Like, 
And and we had let him in, like let that whole congregation in. And then finally they said, well, actually, we're not going to. We're not going to recognize you as a minister in the United Church of Canada. And I think that was more related to the fact that his training credentials weren't recognized than the fact that he was, you know, ready to lynch gays and lesbians. Yeah. You know, like, but, and he left and took most of the congregation with him, um, you know, saying that he'd been fired by the United Church for, for um, not, for condemning gays and lesbians, which, of course, meant that he was on God's side and we weren't. Yeah, we have but, all that know, stuff like, all a, the time. A couple of, couple of conversations would have, would have nipped that one in the bud, you know? Like, yeah, anyway. yeah, we have that same stuff. Uh, these congregate, yeah, let them in, and then then they just end up going and taking the property and making a big mess. Uh, Looking back on it now, I see what we were doing. I totally see how we wanted to be welcoming. And, and we were a safe haven for the LGBT community, and they had no safe haven anywhere. Right. But... But the but those that we welcomed, we welcomed them with their theologies intact, and their theologies were from denominations that, you know, used the same language as we did, but had, didn't have the same critical exploration of it. But it's hard it's hard to tell what is the United Church theology anymore. I don't know. I have no idea anymore. Yeah. Apparently, the formal hearing committee has asked for input from theologians, and. Um, only one of them who is progressive has said yes. The other progressive theologians refused to participate, and all of the conservative theologians agreed to participate. Why did the progressive theologians not participate? Well, that's the question. I would expect it's because they're afraid. Okay. I'm hoping that, I'm hoping they ask David Galston. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I don't know if they will. It's, been, it's going to be a year. It sounds to me like it's possible for a movement to get started if we could get it going of a lot of progressive people coming out and making this making the your denomination um face this mm -hmm. yeah and I, I think particularly if those conversations are taking place in other in other denominations and the other right. thing about that that conversation that was taking place with the leaders of those other uniting congregations or denominations um the first i heard of it was a, a member of the clergy in the united church saying why, why is this conversation taking place, you know, with the top leaders of these different denominations when we aren't even, our church won't even have the conversation with us, with leaders in our church? Like they keep refusing it, refusing it, refusing it. So why are they out there having a conversation with those other people, getting their ideas about, you know, what the future might look like if we head off, if we allow this to happen or if we nip it in the bud, you know, and those would be very serious conversations. But when clergy in, in the United Church of Canada have been asking for a year now for conversations and been denied every single year and a half and been denied every single time, um, that's a problem. That's a very big problem. Greta, we're just out of time. I appreciate uh, what you're doing. You are a trailblazer and are opening the conversation up for uh many people, uh, whether they're within the church or without it, and it's uh, much appreciated. So all the best to you. Thank you very much, John. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. Progressive Spirit has expanded and is now a weekly hour-long program, technically 54 minutes, so stations can fit in the top-of-the-hour news. Get your local public radio station to add Progressive Spirit, either the half-hour version or the hour-long show. Both are available. 
Progressive Spirit is distributed through the Pacifica Radio Network, as well as PRX. You can find Progressive Spirit on podcasts through iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Podomatic, and however else you hear podcasts. The website is ProgressiveSpirit.net. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be well.